Good morning. It is a wonderful morning. It is wonderful that you could be here this morning. Those of you that are visiting with us, we're certainly thankful for your presence and we're blessed by you being here. Uh, we pray that the services thus far have been beneficial and edifying. Certainly the song service has been uplifting. And I hope the things that I present to you this morning, they will be beneficial. They'll help you in some way in your life. As you can see from the title this morning, we're going to look at a subject that's probably not uh, very heartwarming whenever you examine it. And it's entitled, Looking Towards Canaan with a Heart Set on Egypt. And I believe it's important that we look at subjects like this because throughout the entirety of the Scriptures, we have this these metaphors or these parallels that are laid out for us even in the New Testament on reflection back into the Old Testament as, the, as Paul said, they're, they're put there for our learning. They have a purpose and an intent. And whenever you look at Egypt and Egypt's cast in the light of that it's always sinful and things like that and it represented bondage and slavery. And whenever you look in Revelations chapter 11 there in about verse 8, it talks about Holy Sir, the bodies lying about in these cities in Sodom, Gomorrah, and Egypt, and he talks about those things and how and the negative implication that there is. And I think that's relevant for you and I today because sometimes we are just like Israel coming out of Egypt. We're just as Christ described in Luke chapter 9 and verse 62, whenever he says there, he talks about the man. Jesus said, and no man having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom. And the imagery we're given there is someone who is plowing, who has an ox, and he's plowing a field, and you can't successfully plow a field with the ox going in one direction, and you're looking in the other direction. And I find it that we read that sometimes, we read that, and we may infer that it may be complicated for us to get into the kingdom of heaven. It may be complicated for us to find the blessings of heaven if we do that. But that's not what it says at all. That passage says that we are not even fit for the kingdom of heaven. Just as Israel was not fit for the promised land that God had blessed them with. Because they were looking towards Canaan with a heart set in Egypt. Whenever you look historically at what happened there in Israel, I think it's very relevant in understanding their history. In the book of Genesis, whenever you read about how Israel got into Egypt. There was a man by the name of Jacob. God would change his name to Israel. He had 12 sons. One of those sons was a man by the name of Joseph. All of his other brothers hated him because he was spoiled and he let them know it. So they sold him into slavery and they sold him into Egypt. While in Egypt, Joseph rose up through the ranks because of blessings through God and through the providence of God. And he put himself in a position that when great famine came in the land, that he was in a position where he took care of the necessities and the needs of people that, for the famine. His brothers and his family come down to Egypt. They need necessities, and it's there that they're, they're united, reunited. And Genesis closes with that situation in which they've all gone into Egypt. And they begin to flourish there, and they begin to grow in Egypt. Exodus opens up by telling us, now there arose a new king over Egypt, which knew not Joseph. And that king says, hey, they're becoming so big, they're, they're going to overthrow us. So what do they decide to do? It says, therefore, they did set over them taskmasters to afflict them with their burdens. And he made them serve and work and submitted them to slavery. And the Egyptians made the children of Israel to serve with rigor. And they made their lives bitter with hard bondage and mortar and in brick and all manner of service in the field. All their service were when they made them serve was with rigor. 
That word rigor means cruelty. They served with cruelty, but this didn't stop them. They still continued to grow and be outnumbered. The Egyptians is what the fear was going to be. So the Pharaoh said, well, let's just kill off the newborn males, throw them all in the river, anybody under the age of two. There was a woman that had a child that she wasn't going to kill her child, so she put him in the river in a bassinet in a basket and sent him down the river. Pharaoh's daughter would find this child and want to take her and take him into her own home. So this child was raised, a Hebrew child, in Pharaoh's house, and that child's name was Moses. He was raised and educated and had all the things Egyptian, but he was also educated and guided by his mother who, was, who worked for Pharaoh's daughter. Moses raises up in the ranks and he eventually has to flee Egypt because he murders an Egyptian soldier and he's living in exile in Egypt. But God has a plan that he's going to redeem Israel by his plan and bring them out of slavery. And he comes to Moses while Moses is tending as a shepherd and he reveals this plan to him. And although Moses isn't Initially wanting to do it, God convinces him, gives him some tools and some help and ability to do this, and God sends Moses back to Egypt. And this plan is put in place, and it's set forth. God redeemed Israel by His power. A part of this plan was to show Egypt who He was, that He was the one and true living God. And He sent forth plagues of locusts, of boils, of infestations. And those plagues, it all came to a head with the death of the firstborn child. Unless they followed the commandments of God and the instruction and what they were supposed to do and that child wouldn't die. So Israel wasn't impacted by this. Pharaoh, seeing his child die, finally submits to God's plan and God's power and lets them go. And Egypt is freed, or the Hebrews are freed from Egypt in slavery. And that's a, that's a, very quick nutshell of what happened and <laughs> them getting out of Egypt. They were redeemed by the plan of God. They were redeemed by the power of God. But you know, it didn't take long before they began longing after Egypt. As they left Egypt and they got to the Red Sea, Pharaoh had changed his mind and decided he wanted his slaves back. And he sends an army after them, and they're up against a proverbial wall, if you will, with the Red Sea being on one side and the Egyptian army on the other side. And they immediately say, and they said unto Moses, because there were no graves in Egypt, hast thou taken us away to die in the wilderness? Wherefore hast thou dealt thus with us to carry us forth out of Egypt? Was there not any graves in Egypt, Moses? You just had to bring us out here to die in the wilderness? But God delivers them. They were longing for the safety of Egypt. They were longing for that day-to-day safety they had. There was this great might in Egypt, and they were longing after that safety that they had in Egypt. Although they were slaves and there was cruelty every day in their lives, they still wanted that safety, and they couldn't rely on the power of God, and they couldn't rely on the plan of God. They relied on the stability of Egypt, would to God we had died by the hand of the Lord in the, hand, in the land of Egypt when we sat by the flesh pots and when we did eat bread to the full, for ye have brought us forth into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. They didn't remember the cruelty. 
It's odd human nature how that works. When times are tough and struggles come along and we look back when times were worse and we think it's better. They look back on their time before and they said it was so much better because we just had food. They forgot that there was cruelty and enslavement, that their children were being murdered, their children were being thrown into a river. They forgot all that because they had this immediate need for supplies and they longed after the supplies of Egypt just so they could have their bellies full and they couldn't look at the promises and the blessings that God had given them. They constantly longed for the stability of Egypt. Wherefore, have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no bread, neither is there any water, and our soul loatheth this light bread. Having a large number of people travel, those you can imagine would be hard to feed them, and God provided for them sustenance. He would give them meat. He would give them something that they would name manna, which was a, a bread that would give them all the nutrients and need, that they would need. And they turn to God and they say, we despise this bread. We despise this thing that you have blessed us with that will sustain us. And we hate it. Ultimately, what would that lead them to? And you murmured in your tents and said, Because the Lord hated us, he hath brought us forth out of the land of Egypt to deliver us unto the hand of the Amorites and to destroy us. At the end of all of it, it they wound up despising their God. They despised his plan. They despised his power. They despised everything that he had done for them. And they lost focus on what they were getting. They lost focus on the blessings. What was the result of that? The result would be that the majority of them would die in a polluted land, while only a minority of them would actually get into the land of promise. And I believe that there are things that we struggle with. And first of those being the fact that we're concerned with the here and now. Israel was so concerned with the flesh pots and the bread of Pharaoh that they couldn't see the blessings that they had coming. They couldn't recognize and see the power of God, which they saw day in and day out. Because they were focused on their bellies. They were focused on what they didn't have. And they were willing to give up everything to go back to being a slave. Numerous times they said, let us appoint a captain and go back to Egypt. Let us go back to bondage where they would willingly kill our children. And we suffered every day because their focus was in the wrong place. Would to God we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we set, upon, set by the flesh pots and when we did eat bread to the full for you have brought us forth into the wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. You know, you and I struggle with some of the very same things when it comes to focus. It's easy to look at 
our immediate needs and say, I'm hungry or I have to provide or I have to do this and I have to focus on this and all the while here's the spiritual blessings of God sitting aside and we set those to the side and we have this eternal blessing and our focus is on the here and the now. Paul said in Romans chapter 8, therefore there is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus who walk not after the flesh but after the spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus hath made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin condemned sin in the flesh. That the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. For they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh, but they that are after the Spirit, the things of the Spirit." Paul sets this contrast up beautifully, and this was exactly the problem that Israel had, and it's no different for us today. We're worried about the flesh, we're worried about the carnal, we're worried about the here and now, and we're not worried about the things of the Spirit. And if we're spiritual, we're going to worry about those spiritual things. We're going to worry about those things that get us into heaven. We're going to worry about those blessings that God has promised us. We're going to worry about the eternal blessing that He has granted us. But unfortunately, we focus on the here and now. Just like Israel, we have access to the presence of God. Each and every day, they had access to the presence of God. They had access to the presence of God through who? Moses. And we have access to the presence of God through Jesus Christ. In James chapter 14 and verse 6 says, Jesus saith unto them, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh to the Father but by me. We don't have access to God through any other than Jesus Christ. In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul lays this out beautifully throughout the entirety of the chapter. He says, even when we were dead in sins, he hath quickened us together with Christ, by grace you are saved. In verse 6, and hath raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Jesus Christ. Down in verse 18 says, For through Him we both have access by one Spirit unto the Father, in whom you are also builded together for an inhabitation of God through the Spirit. Speaking of the church. He concludes that in the next chapter whenever he says in verse 11, According to the eternal purpose which He has purposed in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness, and access with confidence by the faith of Him. See, without Jesus, we don't have access to God. But just like Israel, we have that same access to God. But unfortunately, many times we're so wrapped up and our focus becomes about everything else instead of accessing God. And although we may not be like Israel where we had a, pillar, a cloud, a pillar, floating for us and guiding us and directing us each and every day. But what we do have is the pillar of God's Word, and it is set to guide us each and every day. The question is, do we follow it? The question is, do we acknowledge it? The question is, do we open it and read it? Because we have access to God. We have access to the promises of God just as Israel had access to the promises of God. In Romans chapter 4 and verse 16, speaking of Abraham, it says, Therefore it is of faith 
that it might be by grace to the end of the promise, might be sure to all the seed, not to that only which is of the law, but to that also which is of the faith of Abraham, which is the father of us all. And stop right there. He's setting up this contract quickly, talking about those that have access through their faith. Not that those were followed, not only to those that follow the law, i.e. Israel and the Hebrews and Judah, but to those that were followed after the faith of Abraham. He continues in verse 17, as it is written, I have made thee a father of many nations before him whom he believed, even God who quickeneth the dead and calleth those things which be not as though they were, who against hope believed in hope, that he might become the father of many nations according to that which was spoken, so shall thy seed be. And being not weak in faith, he considered not his own body now dead when he was about a hundred years old, neither yet the deadness of Sarah's womb. He staggered not at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strong in faith, giving glory to God. And being fully persuaded that what he had promised, he was able to perform. And therefore it was imputed to him for righteousness. I find the thing, the one thing that I needed to underline and I didn't, being fully persuaded that he had promised that he was able to perform, that Moses, or Abraham looked at God and said, I know I'm old. I know my wife is old. But you made a promise to me that many nations would be blessed, and unless I have a male heir, that cannot happen. So he didn't stagger. He knew it was going to come. He knew that God was able to perform his promise and give him whatever he said he was going to promise him. And you and I have that same thing. We have the promise of eternity in heaven. We have the promise of access to God in Christ Jesus. What's sidetracking us? You see, Israel struggled every day with this important point that they didn't believe that God was able to perform. Ultimately, that's what it boils down to. They saw the miracles. They saw his power. They saw everything that he had done for them. But ultimately, they didn't believe that he could perform. Their focus was not on God. Their focus was not on his plan. Their focus was not on his blessings and promise that he said he was going to give them. Their focus was on them. One of the consistent things throughout the New Testament is it's a labor. The consistent principles is it's a labor, that it's not easy. And every day they whined, they complained, they were petulant children because it wasn't easy. And we look at that and we go, how could they be that way? But in the end, we're just like them. We whine and we complain. We act like petulant children because it's not easy, especially the day and age that we live in now. We have so many great blessings, and when struggle comes up, our faith just, poof, disappears. When hard times come, and that hard time might be a, thumbnail, a hangnail in your thumb and what it seems like,
And we forget about the promises of God. And we're worried about getting more of this world and not more in heaven. Even as an established nation, Israel still longed for Egypt. In Isaiah chapter 30, God through Isaiah says that walk down into Egypt and have not asked at my mouth to strengthen themselves in the strength of Pharaoh and to trust in the shadow of Egypt. God through Isaiah says, what is going on? How are you going to Egypt for counsel? How are you going to Egypt for aid? I am right here. He goes on to say, Woe to them that go down to Egypt for help and stay on horses and trust in chariots because they are many and in horsemen because they are very strong. But they look not unto the Holy One of Israel, Israel, neither seek the Lord. How can you go back to the place that put you in bondage and sin and constantly go back to them for counsel? They don't serve the one and true living God. They haven't been delivered like I've consistently delivered you. They haven't established you as a nation like I have established you. Why do you go back to them? Israel was constantly halted between two things, the call of bondage, the call of change, and the call of wings. They were constantly back and forth between these two great things. Chains to bind them in bondage and wings to lift them up to freedom. And they couldn't make up their mind. In 2 Kings, there's a, there's a king there that falls down a lattice in his upper chambers and he was sick. And he sends a messenger to, the, to Beelzebub, the god of Ekron, about whether or not he would recover for his disease. And God sends a message through Elijah, and it says, Is it not because there is not a god in Israel that you go to inquire of Beelzebub, the god of Ekron? What am I, chopped liver? Is there not a god already that you could get counsel from? Is there not a god that can help you in this situation? Why are you going to some idol God that's not going to deliver for you? Israel consistently sought counsel outside of God. Oh, it's been a while back, but my wife and I were talking one evening and talking about kids like parents do. And the next day I was driving to work and a reality hit me, and that reality was this, that I had not made the transition as a father that I should have made. And that transition from your children being young and that submissive stage to the transition of teenage years of understanding and teaching them, listening to them, giving them the, the right direction, I had not made that transition at all. And I'll be honest, I was completely shocked that I had not noticed that in my life. And I, probably one of those situations where my wife was trying to be Gentle, and she'd probably been telling me many times that I wasn't making this transition, but I can be quite the doofus and not realize that, what she's saying. But when I made that, had that realization, 
I immediately, well, number one, I felt like a, a, an idiot, for lack of a better term. But I couldn't see how I overlooked that. I couldn't see how I missed it. And then I, I thought about my own life, and, you know, that was the way I was raised. I grew up a boys ranch with 300 other boys. There was no time for nurturing. <laughs> there was time for everything was about submission. And you had to do what you had to do, and you did what you were told just because somebody told you to do it. But I wasn't raising my children. I'm not, well, I'm not raising my children like I was being raised. And I tell you that story for one specific question. When that reality hit me, do you think I went and called Trevor Lowry about that? Now, Trevor's a good guy. He wasn't a teenager not long ago. He probably could have given me some insight. But I'm not going to call Trevor Lowry. He doesn't have any clue about raising teenagers, other than from the perspective of being a teenager. Nothing against Trevor. You know, I went and talked to my wife. Obviously, she, wrote, she grew up in a more normal home than what I was raised in. I immediately called my brother, being raised in the same environment, and said, man, how did I miss this? And he goes, because you're dumb. I talked to my elders. I remember when our kids were younger, and it seemed like every day, just, we were spanking our kids all the time. And those people that think that we spank our children and we get some twisted sense of joy out of it, they couldn't be more wrong. I remember talking to Carrie, and I was like, all I'm doing is beating my kids. And, you know, he gave that admonition. Keep doing it. It'll pay off in the end. And he was encouraging. Where are we seeking our counsel? Where do we go when times are tough? You know, Israel constantly went back to Egypt. And they went to every other source but that of God. Proverbs gives us admonition after admonition of seeking wise counsel. In Proverbs 19 and verse 20, it says, Hear counsel and receive instruction that thou mayest be wise in the latter day, latter end. There are many devices in man's heart. Nevertheless, the counsel of the Lord that shall stand. There are many places we can get counsel. More so than any other time in history. We can get counsel from school. We can get counsel from the internet. We can get counsel from television, from books. We have all of this information available at our fingertips. But are we going to the counsel that will stand for all eternity? Are we seeking godly counsel? When the rubber meets the road and the struggles come in life and we're struggling spiritually, who do we turn to? And I'm reminded of Rehoboam, the son of Solomon. After Solomon died and Rehoboam became king, the people came to Rehoboam and said, hey, your, bad, your dad, was a, he was a rough man. He taxed us heavily. He made us work hard. What are you going to do for us? Rehoboam immediately turned to Solomon's advisors. Good call. 
And they told him, hey, your man, your, your dad was hard on them. You need to relieve them of some of this affliction. He then made a mistake in turning to his friends. Now, I'm not saying it's a mistake to turn to your friends whenever you're seeking counsel. But the mistake was he couldn't see that his friends were in the exact same boat that he was. That they had grown up in the exact same thing that, they had, that he had. That they had what we call having a silver spoon in your mouth. These people had no clue about the afflictions and the pain and the struggle and the taxation that was going on in Israel. And their advice was go ahead and drop the hammer. And that's exactly what Rehoboam did. And in doing so, would split the kingdom of God. Because he wouldn't heed the counsel of those that had seen what had gone on under Israel's, under Solomon's reign. In Colossians chapter 2 and verse 8, it says, Beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit, after the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. Are we filtering the counsel that's coming to us? Is it a cow? Are we putting it through the filter of Christ? Or are we saying, anything that comes in, I'm going to let it in? Because that's deceit. And the world will deceive us into thinking that that's okay. In James chapter 3 and verse 17, it says, But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, and easy to be entreated, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. All of the blessings that this lists off, seeking wise counsel and the counsel of God. When times get rough, or not even when times get rough, but where are we going for our counsel? Is it from the rudiments of the world? Is it in this postmodern society that we live in? Or is it godly and rooted in God, God, God's wisdom and principles that points us to eternity in heaven? Moses well, let me put it like this. God spoke of Moses wonderfully throughout the Scriptures. The Bible says that he was a very humble man. And I want you to put yourself in Moses' shoe for just a moment. And what Moses went through day in and day out for more than 40 years. Moses had a stiff-necked, rebellious, petulant, children each and every day. At night, he would put his head down to rest, having dealt with petulant children every day. In the morning, he would wake up, and he had more petulant children to deal with. Every time, Moses always put the best interest of Israel at his heart except once. Every day, he would put himself in between Israel and God. 
A number of days where God just said, I want to wipe them all out. And Moses would beg and plead. And the whole congregation of the children of Israel murmured against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. This is just one time that it says it. But last time I counted, I believe there's 18 to 20 verses that say something very similar to this. Murmuring and complaining each and every day. Even so, it even got to the point where his own family was talking behind his back. And they said, speaking of Aaron and Miriam, and they said, Hath the Lord indeed spoken only by Moses? Hath he not also spoken by us? They weren't getting enough recognition. They weren't getting enough from God that, you know, God spoke to us. Why don't we have more control? Why don't we have more say in the things that are going on? And all along you had this man named Moses who was meek and humble. And each day he plodded along and kept after and kept after because of the promise that eventually he wouldn't even get. but he wanted to ensure that his people did get it. And I don't think we really internalize and respect that enough. How often when the smallest of things we have come up in life and we're just, oh, it's so hard. It's so rough. but I still have this promise that's in front of me. Moses didn't have that promise. He was never going to enter into the promised land because of a mistake that he made, but he wanted to ensure that everybody else did. These constant complaining and murmuring. You know, at the end of the day, Israel just didn't have faith in Moses. They didn't have faith in God and what God was going to do for them. In the book of Hebrews chapter 3, the Hebrew author begins that passage or that chapter contrasting God and Moses. And he talks about things that are built, they're built by man, but all things were built by God. And he sets up this contrast of Moses and how great of a man Moses was. But then you had Jesus Christ who was even greater than that. And then about verse 8 and 9 he talks about the provocation that was constantly happening in the wilderness. And that God said that through His wrath, that they were not going to be, sit, that they were not going to be allowed into the promised land. He then admonishes them and tells them to take heed, to encourage each one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be deceived through the the hardener, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. Relating it just like It happened in Israel and in the wilderness. And how that many of them died because of their hardened hearts being deceived by sin. He goes on to say in verse 16, For some, when they had heard, did provoke, howbeit not all that came out of Egypt by Moses. But with whom was he grieved forty years? Was it not with them that had sin, whose carcasses fell in the wilderness? And to whom swear he that they should not enter into his rest? But to them that believed not, 
So we see that they could not enter because of unbelief. And once again, that direct connection between obedience and unbelief. And this, this connection is relayed throughout the entirety of the Scriptures. They couldn't follow after their leader. They couldn't be obedient in Moses and follow and do what Moses instructed and, and planned for them through God. They instead needed to complain. They instead needed a better way or they needed another way. And God said, you're just going to die in the wilderness as your carcasses are going to litter the wilderness because of your unbelief, because of your disobedience. He goes on in chapter 4 to go on and say, so therefore we should fear lest we have a promise that we don't get and we come short of the promises of God. For we have been preached the gospel just as they were preached the gospel in Egypt, but the difference was is the gospel was not received with faith. And the admonition was to examine our faith and examine what Moses did and to follow after Christ who was greater than Moses. Later on in chapter 13 of Hebrews, he goes on to say, Obey them that have the rule over you and submit yourselves, for they watch for your souls, as they that must give account, that they may do it with joy, not with grief, for that is unprofitable for you. When I was younger, I would read this passage, and I would pretty much sum it up as, Hey, I just need to stay out of the elder's hair. I don't need to become troublesome. I don't need to become bothersome for them because I don't want them to go, there's that Danny again. Always a problem. But that's not what that passage means at all. We have problems. We have struggles. That's what the elders are there for. They need to help us. We need to follow after their wisdom. We need to follow after their counsel. We need to proper, place the proper faith in them, not because they've just been given that title, but because of the entire body of work. The time and the energy and the struggle and the pain and the tears Many of those things which we don't get to see, we just get the blessings of their efforts. It's like going into somebody else's garden and get to pick their fruit after they put all the work in. We don't see the struggle that they have to go through. Earlier in this passage, he says, Remember them which have rule over you, who have spoken unto you into the word of God, whose faith follow considering the end of their conversation. We have elders for a reason. That's part of God's plan. But we have elders and leaders for the reason so that we can have an example. Consider their conversation. Consider the end of it. Our leaders are not men that are flighty, that it seemed to be stuck between the world and the promises that are laid ahead. They know where you need to go. And the conversation 
And the end of their conversation is one that is pointing you in that direction. Where is your faith today? Is it in God's plan? Is it in His leaders that we've set forth? Israel constantly got in the position that they were in because they didn't have the right focus, their, con- their counsel. They sought out outside of God for counsel. And they just didn't have faith in God's leaders nor in God. And time and time again throughout the Scriptures, we see this example that's laid before us. In the book of Acts chapter 2, Peter relates the history of Israel. You go to Acts chapter 7, Stephen relays the history of Israel. Almost the entire book of Hebrews is this constant contrast of Israel and us. And all along is this thread of God's plan and acknowledging God's plan. And it's lined up beautifully for God what God wants for you and I today, His plan that He set forth since the foundations of the earth, and that is your salvation. But it wasn't going to be through a man named Moses. It was a man named Jesus Christ. And he set forth a plan that he would come to this world, as Paul said in Romans chapter 4, that he would die and condemn sin in his flesh. That was the plan. God had a plan to redeem you through Jesus Christ and through the power of his blood. The Bible says that those that have been baptized have been baptized in Jesus Christ, have put on Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 6 illustrates beautifully for us the parallel that we go into the waters of baptism when we're resurrected, a new man with Jesus Christ. That there is power in that water. Not because it's water, but it's the power of the operation of faith. That you know that Jesus will redeem, or can redeem you from your sins. The question is, are you going to do it? Are you going to follow after God's plan and God's power for your salvation? That's your choice this morning. And I know that sometimes we struggle in life. I would be a fool to say that it's not easy for us to get distracted by all the peripherals of life. And that our focus can get off kilter every once in a while. But we have an assurance that we can go to God in prayer. That we can be refocused, that we can have our sins forgiven that we can help one another. If you would find yourself in either of these groups, we ask you to come forward as we sing the song that's been selected.